welcome to Inside Education, a podcast for educators who are interested in teaching. Brought to you by me, Sean Delaney. I'm a teacher educator and teacher myself, and my book about teaching, which is published by Routledge, is Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have. You can listen to or download almost 400 episodes of Inside Education by going to my website, seandelaney.com, and clicking on Podcasts. You can write to me with comments or suggestions to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. On this week's podcast, which is a solo episode, I'm delighted to combine two interests of mine, teaching and health and nutrition. I'm going to bring you a list of six things you can do as a teacher to promote health and nutrition among students in your school. When devising the list, I took for granted the fact that most of us know a lot about health and nutrition. Fruits and vegetables are good for us. Reducing our intake of salt, sugar and saturated fats is generally a good thing. Physical exercise and movement is important. I'm assuming that recommendations like those are uncontroversial, even if they're difficult to implement. So the theme of this week's podcast is From Knowledge to Implementation. Each idea on the programme this week is based on research on health and education, and they were selected for their potential to promote health and nutrition among students in your school. The topics I'll discuss on the podcast relate to the teacher's influence on students, helping students learn to cook, teaching children about sleep, how to find out who's hiding in your physical education class, your attitude towards classroom treats, and how to bring about change in students' dietary patterns. In Irish primary schools, food and nutrition is a strand unit in the Social, Personal and Health Education, SPHE, programme. In the infant classes, children learn about the importance of food for growth and development and good hygiene. In the middle classes, students learn about sources of their food, food choices and food needs. In fifth and sixth class, Students learn about nutrients and food-related illnesses. In post-primary junior cycle classes, students learn about topics like the relationship between a balanced diet, dietary habits and well-being, both physical and mental. In post-primary senior classes, one strand is physical activity and nutrition, and the topics covered include evaluating messages conveyed about nutrition and diet, examining attitudes, values and beliefs about nutrition and physical activity, enhancing knowledge, making and maintaining healthy lifestyle choices and exploring societal and environmental factors which make it easier or more difficult to adopt and maintain healthy lifestyle choices in the areas of physical activity and nutrition. Of course, students also learn about promoting health in subjects like physical education and science. But today on the podcast, the focus is on six things your school can do to move from knowing to action in health promotion. Lesson number one, your example matters. The first lesson is that the example shown by a teacher influences children's actions. One study, and I'll put a link to all the studies that I refer to on today's podcast on the show notes for the episode, but one study looked at ways in which schools could get nine-year-old children in Cyprus to eat more fruit. One group of children in third class 
were taught a 15-minute lesson each week for 29 weeks across the entire school year about the benefits of a healthy lifestyle. Classroom materials were developed, the teachers were given two hours professional development and the teaching included a combination of traditional nutrition education, some active learning and tasting. Children were taught about how to choose healthy snacks from a range of possible snack options and they were encouraged to bring healthy food to school. A second group of children received no special teaching about nutrition. Instead, these children's teachers were asked to bring a piece of fruit or an alternative healthy snack, like a homemade small tomato sandwich, to school on at least three days each week. The teachers of the second group were asked to record what food they ate each day. And crucially, the teachers were asked to place the piece of fruit on their desk and to eat it publicly in front of the children during break time. A third group of children, the control group, received neither the special lessons about healthy eating and their teachers did not receive any professional development. Nor were the teachers in the control group asked to display fruit on their desks or to model eating fruit and other healthy snacks in front of the children. At the start of the school year, the children in the three groups were similar in terms of their parents' age and education and other characteristics. The differences at the start of the year were that on average... The children who were in the group that received lessons about nutrition reported eating less fruit than children in the control group. And the body mass index of children in the group where the teacher modelled healthy eating was higher on average. The children tended to weigh more relative to their height compared to the children in the other two groups. In other words, children in the control group, where nothing differently was done, ate more fruit and had lower body weight than the other children at the start of the year. By the end of the school year, however, the researchers found that both the children who received the lessons about healthy eating and the children in the classrooms where the teachers publicly displayed and regularly ate fruit in class ate significantly more fruit than children in the control group. That's probably not that surprising given the effort that was put into encouraging them to do just that. But here's the really interesting finding. At the end of the following year, one year later, when the groups were compared again, in the classes where the teachers ate fruit regularly, the children in those classes consumed more fruit than the children in the classes who received the weekly lessons. There was no longer any significant difference between the control group and the groups who received the lessons about healthy eating. Therefore, based on the evidence of that study, if you want children in your class to eat more fruit, you need to give good example by regularly showing your healthy lunch and eating it in front of the students. Lesson number two. Promote competence in cooking. Teaching children how to cook in school or as an after-school activity has many benefits, such as increasing the consumption of fruit and vegetables, increasing students' confidence in cooking, exposing them to new foods, and increasing how often they cook at home. It can even raise parents' perceptions of their own ability to prepare a healthy meal, can increase the importance parents place on a family meal, and increase the number of family conversations about healthy meals. One example of such an initiative took place in Chicago in the United States. 
Primary school students and students in the first two years of post-primary school attended a weekly class after school for two hours each week for 10 weeks. The classes were taught by chef instructors who were given two hours specialist training. Volunteer school staff, which included teachers, assisted the chefs to ensure that the child-adult ratio was no higher than five to one. In addition to the cooking part, a broader education programme was planned for each of the ten lessons. This programme included components on nutrition like identifying foods that contain protein or understanding nutrition labels on cooking, such as how to sauté, how to marinate and how to make bread, and on cultural awareness, such as cooking from Italy, India and China. Although most of the students were deemed to have a low socioeconomic status, the initiative appeared to have succeeded in increasing home cooking, the intake of fruit and vegetables and how often family members talked about healthy eating. Such hands-on programmes have shown success before, often when accompanied by working on a school garden. However, how many schools in Ireland are equipped for working on such an initiative? Most schools now have access to some kind of gym, but it's less common to find well-equipped areas in schools where students can experience hands-on cooking. Is this something you'd prioritise if you were involved in planning a new school or modifying your current school building? Lesson number three. Improve students' academic performance by educating them about sleep. Many teachers likely consider students' sleep to be a matter for parents. However, in at least one study, school-based modules focused on promoting students' sleep were found to enhance students' sleeping habits. One module covered topics such as the benefits of proper sleep, consequences of poor sleep, barriers to good sleep, constructive bedtime routines, proper sleep hygiene and the importance of sleep for overall health. The content was tailored for particular age groups with different versions for students in first and second grades, third and fourth grades and fifth and sixth grades. Although the content was similar, the characters introduced, the cartoons and the narratives varied from grade group to grade group. An experiential approach was used to develop the materials and teach them, so that the materials raised real-world problems with programme characters which students had to solve with the help of both teacher-directed and teacher-facilitated learning. The children were encouraged to engage with the materials and to pose questions, investigate, experiment, be creative, make decisions and be accountable for the results. Focused reflection by students on their learning was a key part of the programme. A second part of the initiative encouraged parental involvement. Parents were informed through letters home about the content of the activities being completed in class and in parent information evenings they were told about planned future activities. Parents were asked to participate in homework activities children completed as part of the programme and the hope was to promote discussions about sleep between parents and children. A third component involves school staff attending a workshop about the role of sleep in children's health and academic performance. This was offered during the Canadian equivalent of Croke Park hours. And the fourth component involved talking to school principals about what they could do to introduce or promote sleep-friendly practices in their schools. 
That included things like looking at students' workload and the time they spent on extracurricular activities. Taking part in this school-based sleep education initiative was associated with improvements in students' grades in PE, mathematics and the language arts. It was also associated with children spending more time asleep at night, increased true sleep and increased sleep efficiency, and with reduced time needed to fall asleep, as measured by an actigraphic device. Although sleep education is not specifically included in the curriculum, it is emerging more and more as a cornerstone of a healthy lifestyle. This study shows that school-based programmes about sleep can yield benefits. The word sleep is currently mentioned four times in the primary SPHE programme and all references are in the junior end of the school. Perhaps it's time to consider teaching older students about the benefits of sleeping well. Lesson number four. Find out who's hiding in your PE class. If you ask children what their favourite school subject is, many will list physical education, PE, as their favourite or one of their favourites. But for others, PE is not a subject they look forward to. They feel alienated from it. One child says, I'm glad when no one passes me the ball or includes me in the game. I don't want to be involved. Some children just find PE boring. They might find the tasks repetitive or they find the content the same every year. Basketball, volleyball, football and so on. One child says, I wish I had more choice in what we do in PE. Some children complain that their teacher does little to help them get better at PE. Other students have problems related to self-concept or self-esteem. I don't like Jim because other students laugh at me or give me a hard time, said one student. Another, called May, said, I hate rounders. I don't like batting because everyone is waiting for you and everyone is watching you. Other students dislike the competitive atmosphere that exists. Rilla, for example, dislikes PE because the teachers always seem to make you compete against other people. It just doesn't make me feel good. I just want to cooperate with people. When Rilla's school introduced less competitive activities such as aerobics, yoga, walking, coordination and adventure activities, her negative attitude towards PE was reduced. Another student, Cathy, says about team sports, If I was better at the sport, I would participate more because I wouldn't be afraid to do it. I'm afraid that I'm going to mess up and that everyone is going to laugh at me. Julie says that sometimes I just stand around. I just blend into the background and let everybody else get the ball. The idea of hiding in PE class is a relatively common one and students do this in many ways. One is by clowning, messing around and kidding. Students often do this when they find a task difficult, say in gymnastics. They find it easier to have a teacher reprimand them for misbehaviour than to reveal that they're unable to do a particular exercise. Other students hide by being tough, rough, noisy and violent. You often see that kind of behaviour in boys who lack strength, skills, technique or the ability to play as a team member. A third way that students hide in PE class is by pretending that they're sick or injured. They complain of having a stomach ache or a sore knee. Some students even collaborate with other students on this. Robert, who dislikes football, says... When we were told that we were going to play football in PE, 
A friend and I had an agreement that we would crash into each other towards the end of the warming up period, so we would be injured. Another means of hiding is to avoid active involvement in the lesson and to act passively. Catherine explains how she used this technique. It was no fun when we were tested in something I wasn't very good at, such as agility, where I would get poor results. I didn't really feel cool in situations like that. Then I would try to wait until as few as possible were watching. If there were many of us doing the test, I tried as well as I could to get lost or disappear in the crowd. The teacher didn't always remember who he had tested. Those kind of techniques for hiding in PE class are not good for student learning, when students are supposed to experience physical activity in a positive way and learn about various forms of physical activity. To reduce such hiding, teachers can try to create opportunities for all students to experience success in PE, to emphasise learning, cooperation, tactical skill development and emphasise less performance and competition. Lesson number five. Change or eliminate treats. All of us love a treat. We like to receive something nice or special, particularly if we believe we've earned it or deserve it. Treats are given to reward good behaviour. Because they are asked for, to make us feel better, or to encourage us to behave well, finish our dinner, or to eat healthy food. However, very often the treats consist of foods that are energy-dense, like sweets, chocolates and ice cream. Although most children receive treats from parents, grandparents or childminders, teachers and other education practitioners are one source of treats, even if they provide fewer treats than the other groups. One third of teachers on the island of Ireland provide children with treats once a month or more frequently. That's one third. That's, I was kind of surprised that it was so high. Although educators are more likely to give healthy treats such as fruits, stickers or stationery, chocolates and sweets also featured on the top five, often associated with celebrations like Halloween, when a single event could lead to children taking in up to one third of their daily estimated energy needs. That would send any school's healthy eating policy out the window. So, how can a teacher provide the occasional treat and not be a killjoy? Non-food alternatives to energy-dense treats include things like toys, trips, money or a homework pass. If you want to offer students food for celebrations, healthier options include fruit, popcorn, fruit juice, crackers, breadsticks and cheese. Lesson 6. How to bring about change in diet and relevant measurements. From my experience of working with pre-service and early career teachers, I know that a favourite topic to teach is the food pyramid. However, what's becoming increasingly clear is that even if children have a good knowledge of nutrition from school, that knowledge may not translate into what they do in practice. Many reasons exist to explain that, such as the fact that children have relatively little control over what they consume. In contrast, their parents have a strong influence on what children eat. Single lessons in school rarely bring about substantial change. Yet we do know that childhood dietary habits and conditions such as obesity are associated with children's dietary habits and subsequent conditions in adulthood. 
What can schools do to help students adopt more healthy patterns? Alison Marazzi and some colleagues in Cork Institute of Technology wanted to see if they could bring about some changes in children's dietary intake and in health-related statistics using a combination of nutrition education and physical activity. To do this, they set up Project Spree, an initiative based on a similar approach that was used in New Zealand. The research teams went into two primary schools and took measurements and put questions to children who were six years old and ten years old. That was all they did in one school, but in the second school for the following two years they implemented a programme of physical activity encouraging an extra 20 minutes of physical activity every day and using games to increase children's physical activity at lunchtime. They tried to encourage physical activity at home instead of more easygoing homework. On top of that, every week for the two years, the research team provided material on healthier food choices. They gave healthy food demonstrations and advised students how to reduce the amount of energy-dense food they ate that was low in nutrients. The researchers involved parents who were given healthy lunchbox ideas and tasting sessions, and the parents were educated about problems with beverages that are high in sugar and foods from takeaways. You can see that the work of these researchers involved a lot more than a lesson or two about the food pyramid. So did it make a difference? Well, yes and no. The authors were disappointed that despite all they did, the children's dietary intake did not improve very much. However, some changes did come about, such as the children's blood pressure was reduced, and so was their waist to height ratio, which is a predictor of cardiovascular disease in children. Although their general nutritional knowledge improved, the only specific changes were that 10-year-old girls began to take in a higher percentage of their energy from protein, and 6-year-old boys increased their fibre intake. All told, the lesson to take from this study is how difficult it is for schools and teachers to bring about change in dietary practices, despite how important and necessary it is to try and do that, given the number of children in Ireland who are overweight or obese. Project Spree combined ongoing physical activity interventions and weekly lessons about nutrition for a sustained period of time and the involved parents. Such a holistic initiative did not bring about as much change as the researchers had originally hoped. But because it had several dimensions, it led to some important changes in the children's blood pressure, their weight to height ratio and in the students' nutrition knowledge. It's interesting looking back across the studies that schools can have an impact on students' health, but maybe not in the ways we think about. What seems to be important is having sustained messages rather than one-off messages, involving parents and showing good example from the teacher's point of view. And that is whether it's what the teacher eats and it's also about the kind of treats that teachers give to children and when they give them. Sleep is not something that we normally think about when we think about being healthy, but it really is one of the foundations, along with exercise and diet, of children staying healthy. So involving parents and children in education about sleep also seems to make a difference. Monitoring how different children participate in physical education class can also make a difference to 
how inclusive and how beneficial the PE class is for all the students in it. Schools can make a difference in the kinds of food that children cook and how they talk about food, but an obstacle there is that many schools are not well equipped for showing children and teaching children how to cook. And teaching children how to cook doesn't doesn't really appear on, on the curriculum for any primary school subject. Although it obviously does appear for home economics at post-primary level. That completes my list of six steps you can take to promote health and nutrition among students in your school. To find out more about the research articles on which this week's suggestions are based, you can go to the show notes for the episode at insighted.com and they're under podcast 396. Remember you can download hundreds of previous episodes of Inside Education by going to my website seandelaney.com and clicking on podcasts. You can email me by writing to insideeducationpodcast at yahoo.com. If you like this week's podcast, please share it with someone who'd enjoy it and try to implement the suggestions in your practice when schools reopen. I'd be grateful if you would rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave a review there. You can follow me on Twitter at InsideEd. My book about teaching, Become the Primary Teacher Everyone Wants to Have, is available in online bookstores and all good libraries. Until the same time next week, this is Sean Delaney signing off. Thank you for listening.